Welcome to the Harvard on China podcast, coming to you from Harvard's Fairbank Center for Chinese Studies. I'm James Evans, and today's guest is world-renowned host of the Seneca podcast, media figure, and former rock star in the band Tang Dynasty, Kaiser Kuo. Don't forget that you can now listen and subscribe to the Harvard on China podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Podbean. So, Kaiser Kuo, welcome to the Harvard on China podcast. Thanks, James. For our listeners, we've just finished Kaiser's talk at Harvard. So, in your talk, you describe China as a low-gravity planet. What do you mean by that? It's China of the 1980s, the China that I landed on, and I say that just because, well, I was with distinctly modest talents, but、uh, they qualified me for participation in, you know, the, the sort of prestige bands of the of the time. And this wasn't just music. I think there were a lot of people,、uh, whatever their area of expertise, who found that. In China, they could sort of reinvent themselves and and aspire to do things that、uh, the limitations of their abilities would have prevented them from doing back home. That's a good thing and it's a bad thing.、Uh, I think eventually there were going to be enough people around who could tell you to not quit your day job, or eventually there were going to be enough people who were you know homegrown and so patently better than you.、Uh, the, the the gravitation had risen. And、uh, your your super skills were no longer so super. So you've talked in previous interviews about the advantage of being bicultural at that time. What, what do you mean by that? So I don't think that on landing I I really was bicultural. I think that I had、uh, some familiarity with the way that things Chinese were,、uh, with the way people interacted with one another. But my language just 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 on its own wasn't enough to really、uh, communicate. I mean to make myself understood. I mean I, there were rudimentary, idiotic things. I mean I had this really crippled vocabulary wrapped around this really rudimentary、uh, grammar, and and that was it. So I don't think I was bicultural. Eventually, I think I became more so that I was able to swim in both oceans. That's it's it's an enormous advantage no matter what you're doing, right? Today's talk,、uh, we should explain the title of it was、uh, "This is Sinotap: My Life as a Chinese Rock Star." And so, a number of people here will know you as being a former member of the band Tang Dynasty. You were explaining in your talk that there was a really interesting process by which you came to come up with that name. It may be the best thing I've ever done. <laughs> <laughs> so we were faced with this problem of trying to make a genre of music, a type of music that was decidedly un-Chinese, that obviously had its roots in. Western music, and that was going to be abrasive. That was not going to be something that most Chinese music listeners would readily accept. It was just、uh, so much louder and harder and faster than anything that they had ever heard before. And I think Tang Dynasty was was going to make it go down easier. Whether it was made explicit or whether it was mostly intuitive, Chinese understand that Tang's greatness as a dynasty derived in large part from its. Openness from its cosmopolitanism. If you、uh, read about what Chang'an was like during, you know, the the Shengshi Kaiyuan period, you know, the early eighth century, it was remarkable. There were people from all over. You had these, you know, itinerant Japanese monks, and you had these Nestorian Christians that worshipped fire, and you had these Manichaeans, anyway, who worshipped fire. The、uh, you had these surly, bow-legged horsemen in off the step, and you had these. You know melee cell swords and everyone under the sun. I mean the art they really embraced the exotic, right? The the themes that we see now in so many of the the Tang ceramics. It's 
people playing these barbarian, these, these, these alien instruments. So that was the spirit. And what I think is notable is that you don't read about Chinese people in that time worrying that they were surrendering their identity, right? It was confident. They were incredibly confident about who they were as Chinese who could embrace other cultures. You obviously you came up with this name Tang Dynasty, but there was a band already there. How did you build the band? So the band, um, oddly, was was actually sort of artificial. Uh, there was this guy who was a a, a, a director named Law something or another. I can't remember. Came from from Xi'an. Said he had a screenplay that needed a rock band to star in it and also to write the soundtrack. And the screenplay was called. Wari Yaogun, the the crazy chick who played rock and roll. And it was a really, you know, it's a profoundly stupid screenplay about this nightclub singer who has this backup band. The backup band also plays, you know, it's a it's real music or rock rock band. She discovers this. She's I think dating one of the band members. And she ends up sort of falling in with these miscreants and, and discovering that music from the heart was this, you know, the rock and roll stuff. And she eventually sort of, you know, lets her hair down. So we should explain, you, you have this very vivid description of Dingwu, who's your front man. You said he, when you met him, he had a door key for an earring. Yes, yeah. Uh, yeah, it was great. I mean, it was a scene that's just so burned into my memory because we were waiting for him to arrive. The music store owner who wanted to introduce me to him, we're, we were sitting in a restaurant across from his store, and we were drinking, we were already drinking Baijiu, and then suddenly light comes in from the door that's flung open. You know, he's there in silhouette first, and he's this tall guy wearing a trench coat and Philip Marlowe-style detective hat. It's sort of, you know, narrow-brimmed. And he's, you know, he's got this great plumage. I mean, this huge amount of the metal mane. It's an interesting-looking guy to begin with. I mean, just, just his physical features, um, real high cheekbones, and enormous schnoz, big nose, really white teeth. I mean, just, a, you know, kind of a gorgeous smile. Uh, an odd, odd guy really lanky uh, but kind of muscular so cool I mean he had just star quality written all over him something about gravitas about someone who can exhume all of those qualities yeah in, in Chinese it's yatai right he has that unbelievable stage presence this band Tang Dynasty you, you've toured around China and, and done many things what's the most rock and roll thing you've done <laughs> oh my gosh um so with that band, probably the most rock and roll thing that we ever did was uh, we were playing shows in Xiamen, and there was a club owner who owed money. And uh, the venue, the, the guys who operated the venue hadn't gotten paid. The hotel hadn't been paid. Uh, and he excused himself to the bathroom and... We waited and waited, and, and somebody was sent into the bathroom to look for him, and the window of the bathroom was open, and he had absconded. And so uh, we had to hurry back to the hotel. This is pretty clever. And dropped all of our gear out of the hotel window on sheets and then just sort of walked out like we were getting a cigarette. Or they wouldn't have let us leave. They would have, you know, like taken our, our gear, right? Come, yeah. yeah. I may be conflating this, but I think that our, our tour manager insisted that we get paid anyway. And so he went to the, the bar and they grabbed several cases of Jack Daniels <laughs> as payment. 
yeah, uh, that that wasn't the only time um, that we'd taken payment in kind. <laughs> so one of the things that I think people find most interesting about you is your longevity in China, that you've been there for multiple decades. Um, and you said that you were there in the 80s, which is when the band started and you were in language school. Um, and importantly, you were there for 1989 and for the events that happened in June. What were you up to at that particular moment? So when the uh, the student demonstrations happened, uh, we had just put the Tang Dynasty. So in the spring of 1989, uh, right around the time that Hua Bang died, uh, to, to kick off the student demonstrations, uh, my best friend from college, Andrew Sabo, Drew, he had just arrived in China. And uh, Tang Dynasty had already formed. Uh, he was the better drummer. So we asked John Yen, our, our drummer, to sort of sit aside. He was going to be in the film, but he wasn't going to record on the soundtrack. So... Uh, we rehearsed in this great place that Drew and I called the Romper Room, which is this abandoned disco, which had, you know, stage lights and a big stage and PA. And we had managed to to finagle all this gear. Some of the best weeks of my life. I mean, all I did was play music with these guys. And so we wrote a lot and we, we were pretty productive during that time. It sounded great. I mean, it was such a, such a fun time to be playing. We uh, would go down to the square periodically to see what happened i mean it was my, my where drew and i lived uh was in xisi so it's it's pretty close to fuchengmen and we'd walk out to fuchengmen every every night to wait for the tanks the student barricades that had been built up there and at fuchengmen and, and really the entire circumference of the of the second ring road north of chang'an avenue that was um it was sort of student barricades so it was really fascinating and you know i was talking to people, to participants, just asking them what their demands were, what, what, what they were hoping to accomplish, uh, what their, their hopes were for a, a new China. And I was, you know, frankly, uh, I understood the, the youthful exuberance. I was youthful myself. I was no stranger to the street protest or anything, but I was, there were a lot of things about, about what they were saying that, that profoundly bothered me. Anyway, I wasn't in a position to pass. So I just, what, what really impressed me, though, is that I knew there was a lot happening there that I just didn't understand. I didn't. I wasn't culturally equipped to understand what was happening. There was symbolic language, the kind of semiotics in play that had to do with political theater, right, that, that I, I didn't understand the reference to. I never participated. I just observed. And, and um, none of us really got wrapped up in it. In fact... Zhang Zhu and Ding Wu were both fairly conservative about it. They, they were pessimistic, said this isn't going to end well. You know, uh, we were sort of all of the mind that, okay, we should cash our chips in now. They've done pretty well. Uh, now they've, they're serious. They've declared martial law, but gains have been made. And none of us understood the real politics at the top. None of us understood that Zhao Ziyang was kind of imperiled. You know, we were focused on the music, so it was a kind of weird bifurcated life where there was all this happening. And you have to understand that during that time, it was incredibly free. We were able to play shows like in Rydhan Park or anywhere within the zone of occupation with no cops and with no... I mean, we, we, we did all sorts of stuff like that. There was this gigantic arts festival that was held for days at the Ancient Observatory, and my band played that. There's video of it on YouTube you know the the proto Tang Dynasty playing there. I think we're pl- covering a couple of Rush songs. It's amazing. 
later, you know, we got on a train to go go on tour. We, you know, we had a, a body of material that we were going to, and we got on a train on the morning of June 3rd. And the weird thing was going from my house to, which was in Xisi, to the train station, it should have been a very, very, you know, sort of direct line, just south and then down Chang'anjie and then to the, but that was impossible to go that way. There'd something had happened that we had to take this gigantic circuitous route. And so I, I thought there might be something that had changed. 16 hours later, the gunfire started and we were on a train. I had no idea. I arrived in Baicheng, played a show. One of my bandmates in, in the sort of expat band that had gone, feuded with the organizers and then headed back into Beijing. We went on to Chichihar and it wasn't until the morning of June 7th that we figured out what had happened. So it was, yeah, it was a really kind of a, a strange adventure. You know, we were sort of worried for our lives, not because of what had happened there, but because we had been sold uh, as Michael Jackson's backup band. And we were actually in danger because the the, the crowd now seeing uh, my friend Sean had gone back to Beijing. And so they didn't see any, any Caucasians. And, or black people, for that matter. And they, they didn't believe that Michael Jackson's backup... Well, we didn't know that we'd been advertised as, as Michael Jackson's backup band. And and yet there we were, uh, being booed and yelled at. They burned down the ticket booth. They demanded refunds. And we still had to play it the next night. So we had we were scrambling to, to figure out how to pull off a show. So a slightly more immediate danger. Slightly. <laughs> <laughs> you talk a lot about how heavy metal is very much like an import into China, or the ideas of heavy metal and what it stands for. You also say that rock and heavy metal's moment in the sun has passed in China. What do you mean by those two statements? I think that heavy metal had a lot of potential appeal in China. It is an earnest form of music. It's earnest to a fault. Western heavy metal shares a lot of cultural touchstones those would be, you know, I mean, if you look at, at the sort of pagan imagery, imagery in the Vikings, the Conan the Barbarian stuff, the the swords and sorcery stuff, the Dungeons and Dragons imagery, the um, Tolkien, but also, I mean, when it's Luciferian, right, um, that too, actually, it has cultural touchstones that, you know, maybe would find an analogy in China. And metal is itself, uh, people don't think of it this way, but there is a certain romanticism to it in, in the old sense, a, a heroism in it, a real individualism, you know, because it is kind of Promethean, right? Um, it, it is about individual power. And it mapped, I, f- I found, really, really well into China where it could find analogous cultural kind of reference in the Wuxia Xiaoshuo, in, in the Sanguo Yi in the Three Kingdoms, in Shui Hu Zhuai, of, you know, there was that kind of banding of brothers, this male, there's, it's a distinctly kind of masculine kind of a, a thing. And in, in that sense, it's, you know, it's very problematic. But for the same people, the same reason that guys like sports teams or gangs, for that matter, uh, people like rock bands, and, and it was something that feels good about being a part of, of that. And the music, you know, we, we knew that we could draw on a kind of martial tradition of Chinese music, that it was there to be tapped. And I think we did that pretty successfully. I think we did it even more successfully in my subsequent band, Chunqiu. I think it, it um, took those ideas and, and took them a little bit further. What I 
I think is also really important is that martial arts mapped onto the sort of technique of heavy metal. There's a parallel there that, you know, you could become masterful on your instrument just as you could become masterful with, you know, with the stat. That sort of focus on technique was something that a lot of young Chinese men understood as well. Unlike in the West, where rock and heavy metal was always, it was sticking it to the man, it was about change and anarchism and things like that. Rock music and music in general in China doesn't have that kind of political potential. To what extent does music and changing tastes of music reflect the political environment, though, in China? I think that the, the, the relationship is pretty tenuous, um, that if anything, it reflects economic realities. Uh, it has very little relationship to power, which is itself a very simple thing to understand. I mean, you know, it's a, an authoritarian one-party state that will sometimes experience periods of less oppressiveness where these alternative forms of music can flourish, and other times it'll crack down when they'll, they'll certainly feel the pressure. But it doesn't enter into the thinking of a lot of these guys. A lot of them, I mean, you'd be surprised at their politics. A lot of them are very nativist. A lot of them are very supportive, actually, of the CCP in ways that I thought was, uh, that were, you know, initially quite surprised me. I'm not going to name names, but many of the bands that I talked to when I went back to China in 1991, 1992, you know, a year, two years after Tiananmen, were very, very critical of the students. They were, you know, ready to move past and say, we made mistakes. That was really kind of shocking to me. I mean, I certainly wasn't on the same page as them. So I have a rock and roll related question that was crowdsourced. So I made the mistake of asking online what questions I should ask you. And the overwhelming response was people want to know about your hair care regime. They said, Kaiser has this great hair. How do you keep it so shiny? (laughs) This goes out of my head. I mean, seriously, it's just whatever shampoo and conditioner my Uh, wife has bought. And have you always had long hair? Um, I cut it short briefly in 1995. Uh, But yeah, since the time I was about 18 until now. I guess this is your your brand, isn't it? My brand, right. It's funny. I mean, if you've ever been to like a, a big metal festival and one of these outdoor metal festivals where everyone camps, there is an awful lot of attention paid to hair hygiene. <laughs> Unnecessarily so. Unnecessarily so. It's all metal guys. Right? So a lot of people uh, will know you not just as a musician, but for your work on the Seneca podcast. Oh, really? Oh, good. Surprise. <laughs> How about that for a transition? <laughs> and I actually, somebody said to me that uh, they think you're the most famous voice on China that people listen to. Maybe for... For those who are not aware, Seneca Podcast has now been merged into this sub-China media group. Right. Um, Perhaps you can very briefly explain what that is. So Seneca started in April 2010 as just a lark. Jeremy and I just were having a beer one night and said, hey, what podcast do you listen to? He rattled off mine, he rattled off his. And then I think I asked him, what about China podcasts? Are you aware of any decent China podcasts? And he wasn't, and neither was I. And so we said, well, gosh, why don't we do one? And we kind of took a quick, you know, sort of personal inventory. I said, well, what what do we need? We need, well, uh, a good network for guests. And God, I mean, you and me, between the two of us, a terrific network that covers not just the reporters, but also a lot of business people, a lot of people in government and the NGO world and academics. So I said, great, let's, let's do one. And it really, I mean, literally, it was less than two weeks later that we sat down with Bill Bishop 
to to record the very first one on April 1st, 2010. And since then, we know we've tried to do it every week. You know, for the last Christ, since May of 2016, we've managed to do one every single week, not even missing a holiday. So we're, we're pretty proud of that. You know, it was like I said, it was it was just some, a labor of love. We had not sought advertising, not had sought sponsorships. We were just doing it out of out of our own interest. And in 2016, I was getting ready to move to the U.S. Now I was working for Baidu at the time, and they had expressed a willingness to move me to the San Francisco Bay Area. And I didn't really want to. I mean, the the, the fact is, look, I, I told my wife. I said we already live in a city with overpriced housing, terrible traffic congestion, with the sole consolation of excellent Chinese food. Let's just stay here, if that's what it comes down to. So when the, the folks from South China came around and, and they were, said they were interested in working with us, uh, Jeremy and I both sort of jumped at it and we said, yeah, uh, in fact, we have a very good idea. You can acquire our podcast and we'll come on board. We'll help you out with your editorial. Uh, you'll You'll have our networks. You'll have our back catalog, we'll be able to do some pretty cool things. And it didn't take long at all to come to an agreement. So it was sort of an acquihire, as it were, which was really, really good for both of us because now I got to quit my day job. Jeremy, who was working at the FT at the time, he got to quit his day job. And we, we know we both liked our day jobs. I mean, but this was better. This is living the dream. This is taking something that we'd been doing just for fun and suddenly being able to make a living, you know, a decent living at it, equity in the company, and uh, the, the possibility of, of really taking a brand new media company that had not taken any shape at all. It, all it was was sort of an aggregator. So we, we had, and we still have some pretty big plans for what we're going to do with it eventually. Any that you would like to share with our avid listeners? Well, obviously, you know, we, we want to expand our, our stable of podcasts. We want to have more uh, podcasts that are available. We want to up the amount of original content that we're producing. So we want to be able to grow our network. I think that there are a lot of people out there who are doing quite like-minded work, uh, who see China sort of the same way we do. We're not really ideologically strident in either direction. I mean, we're, we really try to be to be fair and to to be reflective, to really think about coverage of China, and uh, we, you know, I think it will eventually become something that embraces a lot of the other media properties that are out there. We'll, we'll all kind of come together in a confederation, hopefully under this banner. And I guess South China is inherently focused on a Western audience looking into China. That's right. Are there plans to try and incorporate a Chinese audience? Uh, no, not not at present. I mean, it, that's always tempting. That's not our skill set right now. That's not what we really do best. I think... That is something that somebody should be doing. Uh, while Jeremy and I both, you know, read and speak Chinese, neither of us writes Chinese particularly well. I wouldn't be a competent editor of Chinese writing. I I could write essays that would, you know, sound like a, a, maybe a precocious eight year old, and that would be about it. Maybe not even a very precocious one. But so my next question prompt: I've just written the word <laughs> on my piece of paper, <laughs> which is that. You're actually the Seneca podcast. I think one of the reasons it's been so popular is it's this really refreshing take and approach to China that is otherwise quite stifling and boring, and people don't want to hear about it. <laughs> um, and so you do say f- quite a lot sometimes. We don't. In the podcast. We, we we no longer do. We beep it. I was going to ask: Is this now the the change? Right. Know. So this is actually something we agreed to. Uh, our 
our owner. I mean, it's a very reasonable request. I mean, and it's something that we wanted to sort of grow up as a podcast. Um, and I don't know that it the added all that much value to it. Um, I sat down with somebody whose opinion I, I very much respect, um, somebody who's been in the game for a very long time. And her position we take very, very seriously. Once When she tells us, you guys talk too much about yourselves in the beginning of the show. You guys, there's too much gratuitous swearing. There's no reason to do that. Uh, we we took it under advice, not just under, but we, we, we took it very seriously and we just immediately changed up our format. So we have a matured Seneca podcast. That's the idea. <laughs> I mean, there's still a bunch of juvenile stuff. I mean, I, I always still find a way to introduce Jeremy in some silly way. But... <laughs> so on Seneca podcast, a lot of what you do is analyze current affairs that are happening in China. Do you ever find yourself in a position where you would just love to get some Chinese government officials in a room and be like, look, here's our advice to you. We keep telling you, or we keep talking about these issues on the podcast. If only you did this thing, it would solve a whole load of your problems. Any, anybody who's gotten to our position, uh, you know, whose, whose show is this widely listened to, has had that opportunity. I mean, it's not like I've never been in a room with government officials where I'm, I'm, I'm able to candidly deliver. Here's here's what I think you should do. I mean, it's not central committee members. It's, I mean, but but they're they're officials, and often I am asked exactly that. They they're perfectly aware of the show that we do, and we're not blocked, which is I think a very interesting thing. They take it, they take us pretty seriously. Um, I know Jeremy's been you know had, had the same sort of experience. I mean, I, I think it's a badge of success that I've been able to, 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 to. I've not seen any of my suggestions actually materialize in policy, and when that happens, I, I, I'll, 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 I can, I can die happily. But I don't. I think at least it's it's a step that they're they're thinking. Uh, this is somebody who, uh, at least we can have a conversation with. To finish up, we have a quick fire round. Okay. The Fairbank Five. So our first question is: What is your favorite Chinese food? Uh, Lazi. I make it well for first of all, but I I love that whole process of picking through that pepper pile and the, just these these like ridiculously flavorful little nuggets, and it's visually just spectacular. I, I make it really well too, Lazi. Uh, your favorite place in China? Oh gosh, favorite place in China. Oh my God, this is a tough one. My my parents' house in in Yangrou Hutong, Xisi. Uh, That's what I'm gonna go with. It's my favorite place in China. It's a decrepit old neighborhood, you know, in, in West Beijing. It's just so Beijingy. It's a converted Sihuyar. Um, but so much has happened in that place. I mean, and, and, and it, you know, my grandmother used to live there. And I mean, it just, it, it's one of these places that has just so much sort of, what is it, spiritus loci kind of going on there. Um, your favorite Chinese saying? It's weird. I've been, there's one I keep using. It's, um, which means melon patch and plum tree, which means a gentleman doesn't tie his shoes in a melon patch and doesn't stretch his arms under his neighbor's plum trees. So it's like you don't give the appearance of impropriety even if what you're doing is innocent. And for some reason in the Trump administration, I've, I've had many times where I've, I've, I've said that. So yeah, that's what I'm going to go with. A book that you have read recently on China that you would recommend? Oh, easily. Uh, so Richard McGregor's new book, Asia's Reckoning. It's it's the best book and probably the only book that really looks seriously at 
the whole post-war relationship between China, Japan, and the United States. And he does it without trying to shoehorn it into some artificial kind of political science IR theory model. It's just in all the full complexity of the relationship. And it's it's marvelous. Final quickfire is a class that you've taken that changed your thinking about the country in some way. Yeah, okay, so a seminar in intellectual history that I did with Charles Headkey at the University of Arizona when I was a master's degree student and I got we got to really uh, look in in incredible depth at the New Culture May Fourth movement. That's that was probably it. Uh, it, and I think in the course of that class, we read Levinson's Liang Qichao and the Mind of Modern China, and then from there, I went on to read the Confucian China and its Modern Fate trilogy by Levinson. So, Headkey studied under Levinson, and Levinson became really kind of my pole star for intellectual history in China. Well, Kaiser Guo, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, thank you, James.